Let me encourage you to take your Bibles now and turn with me to the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. Uh, been trying to do, when I have opportunity, to give a series on the doctrine of the church as we find it in the Bible. And I think there are many living today who have a very confused understanding of what the church of Jesus Christ is. And so there are a number of portraits that we have of the church, descriptions of the church given to us in God's word. And tonight I want to look at a passage that deals with the establishment of Christ's church. Some uh, weeks ago our associate pastor spoke from the Gospel of Mark where we had this confession on the part of Peter, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And here in the Gospel of Matthew, we have just a little bit fuller context to that. So let's look at it together. In Matthew 16, beginning with verse 13, I want to read through verse 20. Hear the word of the true and living God. <clears throat> now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. All flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of the grass. The grass withers, and the flower thereof falls away, but the word of our Lord shall stand Forever. Let's seek the face of God in prayer and ask his blessing upon the ministry of his word. Let us pray. O oh, Holy Fathers, we bow in your presence. We do thank you for your holy and infallible word. We thank you, O oh, Father, that you have not left us to ourselves bereft of a word from you, but you have given us your word abundantly. We thank you afresh for our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his church. And we thank you, Father, that it has been built and established upon himself. And fathers, we would consider what our Lord Jesus has to say in this passage concerning his church. Grant, O oh God, that you would be pleased to grant us ears to hear eyes to see, and hearts to believe and embrace the truth as it is in Jesus. We ask these things in his name. Amen. 
I confess to my shame that uh, I have never had the head nor hands requisite for the profession of carpentry. I've never been able to fathom myself the, the various intricacies of metalwork, woodwork, or technical drawings. They're just simply appear very bewilderingly to me when I look at them. Uh, and I've always stood in sheer amazement and admiration of those who have a mind for framing physical objects and structure as well as skillful hands that can take those mental images conveyed in drawings and then turn them into physical realities. My father could do that. I never could. But I do know at least one thing about building. That when you're building the house, although there are many things that are important and necessary, one thing is absolutely paramount and vital in the construction of it. And it is this. You may have had a very creative and expansive ideas about what you'd like to see in your home and how you'd like to see it laid out. But if you have not built a proper foundation for that home, everything else upon which you have set your heart is very liable, indeed susceptible, to the possibility and most probability of collapse. If the foundation itself is not right, then everything else is built on nothing more solid than shifting sand. Now, the church of Jesus Christ today, it must appear to multitudes, not only in this land, but throughout many lands, to be on the very verge of collapse. We hear the news about how the church is under constant persecution. The church of Jesus Christ finds itself assailed from without, no doubt by many powerful enemies. There is, for example, rampant secularism. There is mindless materialism. There is postmodern apathy or indifference about spiritual things. There is unbelieving science, in many cases falsely called. And there is on another front as well, mighty Islam. And we've all witnessed the atrocities of terrorism even in the past few days that we see in the news. But I would suggest tonight that anything more seriously than that which comes to us from without is the fact that there are enemies within. Inside the church of Jesus Christ, so often it finds itself marked by weakness, by compromise, by cowardness, by pride, by sensuality, by divisiveness, by sectarianism, everybody having their own view of doing this or that. And so one could go on and on. And yet Jesus could say to these 12 men, this little band, of whom one was going to betray him, one who would deny him with curses, and the rest of them would desert him in his hour of most crucial need. Nonetheless, it is to these, he says, I will build my church, 
and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades, the powers of death, of evil, will not prevail against it. How could the Lord Jesus Christ be so confident as he looked at this little group of men so weak in themselves, so frail, so fragile, and yet this is the public face of the church of Jesus Christ. This was his church, and yet our Lord could say to them, I will build my church in the gates of hell, the powers of darkness, Satan, and all his mighty minions of mischief shall not prevail against it. Well, for one reason, Jesus' church would stand. This frail, weak, and far too proud and easily shaken little flock to whom he was addressing was nonetheless anchored to a rock that could never be moved. And it is, it is that to which they were attached. And it is to that which would give them stability and solidity throughout the ages. They were united. They were built upon, they were founded upon a rock that can never and will never be moved. In Matthew 16, we see the very first reference in the New Testament then to the church. I will build my church. And here the Lord Jesus Christ is telling us that he and no other is the sure foundation upon which his church Stands For no other foundation, as Paul speaks to the Corinthian believers, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the church's one foundation. And I think this is very clear from this encounter the Lord Jesus has with Peter at a very pivotal point in his ministry. With the shadow of the cross lurking and increasingly piercing his soul, Jesus asked his disciples, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they say, well, some say John the Baptist risen from the dead. Others say Elijah, and others say, well, maybe one of the prophets. But addressing himself to them, Jesus puts the question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter, speaking on behalf of the entire apostolate, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's look just a little bit tonight at these words of our Lord Jesus Christ because I think this passage has several important points, three of them to be sure. And the first is the emphasis here upon Peter's confession of faith, which is focused upon the Lord Jesus Christ and not on Peter himself. Now, it is true that there are many and some very fine scholars who would seek to explain this passage in terms of Peter and the other apostles being the foundation upon which Christ would build his church. And, of course, in a sense, that's true. The church is built 
upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. And it's possible, I would have to say, it is possible that that's what our Lord is saying. And I also say to you that you are, Peter, a little stone, but I will make you a rock. And on this rock, I will build my church. You will be my inspired apostles, and you will bring my living inspired word, which will serve to be the very foundation of my church. But I do think that we should perhaps understand Jesus to mean not Peter so much and the other apostles as the church's foundation, but Jesus himself as the church's foundation. You are Peter, a little rock, but upon this rock, the rock that you have confessed concerning me, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And on this rock I will, be my, I will build my church. And the reason why I would tend to that particular explanation is that because that would seem to be the way that Peter himself understood the response of our Lord. In Acts chapter 4, when Peter and John find themselves before the Sanhedrin, that was the Jewish court, the ruling council in Jerusalem, Peter says this, Let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands before you whole. This is the stone, he says, which the builders rejected which has become the chief cornerstone. There is salvation in no other. And when we read his first epistle, chapter 2, we find words that Peter quotes from the 28th chapter of Isaiah, which I read tonight for our call to worship, which we heard referenced this morning, the quotation in Isaiah is a little fuller than that which we find in 1 Peter 2. And in Isaiah 28 and verse 16, we read this, Therefore says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily. When Jesus says, You are Peter, a little rock, a little stone, and on this rock I will build my church, I think our Lord is saying that what the church will be built on is the Messiah. It is the Christ, the Son of the living God. He is the sure foundation. Who He is and what He will do and what He will continue to do. He Himself is the church's sure foundation. I love the words of the ancient church father, Augustine. He said this in one of his sermons. It's not very well known by many today, but he said, Christ, you said, will not build his church upon a man, but upon Peter's confession. That is the person whom Peter was confessing. He says, you are the Christ and the son of the living God. And Augustine says, there's the rock for you. There's the foundation. There's where the church 
is to be built in which the gates of the underworld, Augustine said, cannot conquer. Now we need to ask the question, I think, this point. We need to ask, what do we mean by this? When we say that Jesus Christ is the church's one foundation, what do we mean by that? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, what did Peter mean by that? What did Peter understand by that? Christ to be saying. In what sense is Jesus the Christ, the Son of the living God, the church's one foundation? Well, the key to that lies, I think, in unpacking Peter's confession. First of all, he says, you're the Christ. Well, who, what is this Christ of which Peter speaks. What does it mean? Well, we know that the Greek word Christos is simply the word which the Hebrew word translates as Messiah, the anointed one. You find, for example, in the Old Testament prophecy of Daniel, Daniel chapter 9 at verses 25 and 26, know it therefore and understand, says the angel Gabriel to Daniel, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah, the anointed one, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And Daniel is being told there that a certain amount of time would pass between his time and the coming of the anointed one, the Messiah, the one in whom all the promises of God were to be embodied. Messiah is God's long-promised deliverer, the one who would come and fulfill all of God's promises to his people. And it's interesting that in the prophecy of Isaiah, this word Messiah is used in the lesser sense of Cyrus, the Persian king. And it's used in such a way, I think, that helps us to understand just what Peter understood By his own confession, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the long promised one. You are the embodiment, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to his people. In Isaiah 45, in verse 1, we read, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, his Messiah, that is to Cyrus, the Persian king. And throughout these chapters, surrounding the 45th chapter of the prophecy of Isaiah, you see a number of things that help us, you and I, to have a fuller picture and build more substance into what we mean and what Peter would surely have meant by this confession, you are the Christ, the Messiah. We find, for example... In Isaiah 41, in verse 25, that Cyrus, God's Messiah, was a man of God's own choice. It was God who chose him and who would raise him up. I have raised up one from the north. He shall come. Cyrus, you see, does not come at his own behest. But he comes, he arrives by the appointment of Yahweh God. He is under the sovereign oversight and direction of the Lord. 
And in Isaiah 45 and verse 13, we find that this Messiah, Cyrus, is appointed to accomplish a redemptive purpose towards God's people. Isaiah 45 verse 13, I have raised him up in righteousness and I will direct all of his ways. He shall build my city and let my exiles go free. Not for price, nor for reward, says the Lord of hosts, the Lord Sabaoth. He will come with a redemptive purpose to fulfill. And then thirdly, in Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 3, he will come and be given, we see, dominion over nations. Thus says the Lord to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue nations before him and loose the armor of kings. And then fourthly, in the opening verses of Isaiah 45, they make it clear that everything Cyrus does, it is God himself who is fulfilling his own purposes. Notice what God says. I will go before you. I will break in pieces the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness and hidden riches of secret places. I have even called you by your name. I have named you though you were not known by me. I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, and there is no other. There is no God besides me. I will gird you, though you have not known me. And you see there in that prophecy of Isaiah, there is a picture being painted for us regarding this minor Messiah, whom God uses, in a sense, to foreshadow the coming of the ultimate Messiah. And in declaring Jesus to be the Christ then, Peter is saying, you are God's man. You are the one who has been sent by God to redeem his people. You are the one who is going to rule the nations. In you, God is going to fulfill all of his promises. It's no wonder then that we read in Isaiah 28 and 16, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. I'm doing it, says the Lord. He is my foundation for the church that will bear my name in the world. You see, Jesus Christ comes as the ordained servant of his Father. He comes with a commission to redeem as well as subdue the nations. He comes with a divine warrant, therefore, which cannot be overthrown. But it seems to me that we can actually say a little more concerning Peter's confession. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God. You might know that in the Old Testament, there are three kinds of people who were anointed, who were, we might say, Christed. We might say anointed. Three kinds of people. What kinds of people were they? As good Presbyterians, we ought to know prophets priests, and kings. And their anointing was to signify at least two things about them. First of all, that they were separated unto the Lord and consecrated 
to his service. You see that regarding kings with David in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 4. Or in Exodus chapter 28 verse 41 regarding priests. Or prophets we see in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 16. Being anointed with oil was symbolic of their being consecrated to the Lord. They were no longer their own. But they had been set apart for a divine and a holy calling for God's purpose. But then secondly, their anointing symbolized something else as well. It symbolized their equipping for service. And it's associated with the outpouring of the Spirit. As time hurries on, just let me mention one passage from Isaiah 61 in verse 1. And Jesus quotes this in the Gospel records. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, says the Messiah who is to come. Because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me. He has Christed me. He comes as the one who has the spirit without measure or limit. He comes as the prophet, priest, and king who ultimately and majestically as the son of God embodies everything that kingship and priesthood and prophethood would signify. And it is on this indestructible foundation then that the church of Jesus Christ is established in the world. It is built upon him as God's final prophet. As the one who has come to bring us God's last and best word. Who is himself. He is the word of God. His everything which the word of God has promised, prophesied and pointed to and revealed in sign and symbol and ceremony in the Old Testament. He is God's last and best word to humanity and the church of God is founded upon the last and the best and infallible word embodied in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And his resurrection from the dead was the seal that God gave to the certainty of his son as the foundation of truth in the world. The church cannot ultimately be overwhelmed because it is built upon the one who is himself in himself, the very truth who comes as the final prophet of God to speak to us and to be for us. The very word of God. And secondly, it is built upon him because he is God's ultimate priest. For he is a priest who comes. And he does not simply offer sacrifices that are given repeatedly for sin. But who as the son of the living God becomes at one and the same time both offerer and offering and offering up himself as the one final sacrifice for sin that ultimately, fully, finally, and forever atones for the sins of any and all who will ever believe on him and embrace him from the heart. 
And the church is built upon the finished work of Jesus Christ, the atonement by God to make salvation for sin. And then thirdly, the church is built upon the true king because here is a king who comes unlike any other preceding king. Here is a king who comes in the impeccability of his divine nature, joined as well to a very frail humanity. He will not fail nor be discouraged, Isaiah tells us in the 42nd chapter, till he has established justice in the earth, who will fulfill all righteousness, who will not be deflected, but who will bring the rule of God to bear ultimately upon all of the nations. Do you see then what Peter Peter is saying here? He says, you are the Christ, you are God's final prophet, you're his ultimate priest, his true ultimate king. It is what Jesus, who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And what he continues to do presently at the right hand of God the Father that makes his church church indestructible. I will build my church. That's why we sung tonight, crowns and thrones may perish, kingdoms rise and wane. But the church of Jesus constant will remain. Gates of hell can never against that church prevail. We have Christ's own promise. And that cannot fail. So we have the promise, the ultimate promise of the ultimate king. Now there are many, it is to be true that there are many ways in which we can lament the poverty of our Christianity today. But then we need to remind ourselves of what our Savior said, I will build our church Now, maybe you're thinking, and I just say this as I close tonight. You may be thinking, well, David, all of this that you said, it sounds all well and good. But this land is littered with the empty shells of once vibrant Christian churches. What did Jesus mean when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it? Do we not see today in every corner of the land testimonies to churches that have been overwhelmed and vanquished? Well, these are, dear people, testimonies indeed, not to a church that is being overwhelmed and vanquished, but rather They are a testimony to a king who will not tolerate unbelief in his church, who will not tolerate wickedness, who will not tolerate the absence of love in congregations that bear his name. The risen Christ spoke some devastating words to the church at Ephesus. In Ephesus... To be sure, this was a church founded by the Apostle Paul himself. It was a church that seemed to have everything. It was a church that was impeccably orthodox. A church, moreover, that was resolved to search out and rightly to cast out people who were less than what they professed to be. And yet the risen Lord had this to say against him. I'm sure that they were wondering in themselves, Lord, what could you possibly 
have against us? And he says this, you have left, you have abandoned your first love. You have abandoned your first love. And unless you repent, unless you repent, Jesus says, I will remove your lampstand. You won't be a church any longer. I will focus my church in another place. And I will gather to myself another people. My work will go on, but you will be no more. And what we see here, I think, is that the church of Jesus Christ is at the same time both fragile and invulnerable. It is weak, but it's strong. It is desperately vulnerable, but it is indestructibly invulnerable. And that's the tension with which we live all of our days. But it's a tension that is undergirded by the promise of our Lord, I will build my church. It may have the appearance of being a broken wreck, but it is a broken wreck that is united to me. And I will carry it to glory, bruised, broken, battered, but my special treasure nonetheless. And then the superstructure will be taken away and the entire cosmos will gasp. This was the church. And we didn't know it. Because what is our glory? Our glory is that we are united to Jesus Christ. The precious tried stone laid in Zion. The church's one foundation is Jesus Christ her Lord. Now I know that I've not said half of what could be said about this passage. And there are other things in this passage perhaps that need to be addressed. But... We need to be reminded, you and I, in these confused times, it's so easy to lose heart. If you're anything like me, it is so easy to lose heart. We need, you and I, to refocus over and over again and remind ourselves and be reminded that we're founded upon Jesus Christ. And for that reason, we cannot be moved. May God enable us by his grace to be a part of that church and to confess Jesus Christ alone and to rest all that we are upon the omnipotence of all that he is. Let us pray.